You're listening to the free, abridged edition of the Energy Transition Show. American coal. Nuclear energy. Natural gas. Hydro. Solar power. Wind turbines. We're becoming a monumental exporter of natural gas. This boom in the United States is not a bubble that's going away. The oil's still there. I'd rather pump it from another country and save ours, and then when the rest of the world runs out, hey, guess what? We can still turn on our lights. We've run into a problem where we have constraints, where there are limits now. The new phase we're going into related to the exhaustion of these resources, there's no replacement. This is a one-shot affair, and we're unprepared for it. Really, we do not have very much more time to get a handle on this problem. It's better to get to a renewable future, a sustainable future, sooner rather than later. Get there before we do the environmental damage, not after. For June 13th, 2018, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder. I've often said that we should look to islands as guides to the energy transition, because if you can design an energy system to be self-sufficient enough to run an island, you can do the same in a mainland country. Hawaii is proving to be an interesting example, as it proceeds with its efforts to replace diesel-fired power generators with wind, solar, and geothermal power. The Caribbean islands also offer some really interesting examples, being blessed with plenty of wind and sun, and in some cases, enough local wealth and need to try to become almost completely renewably powered, even as some of their economies remain dependent on industries like oil refining. But Australia has to be the most interesting such example of all. It's the largest island undergoing transition, for one thing, being about the same width and overall size as the lower 48 states of the U.S. It has abundant wind and solar, but it also has an economy that is deeply tied to entrenched fossil fuel and mining interests. It has very expensive power relative to other mainland countries, which offers a uniquely attractive business case for the challengers and disruptors of energy transition. And now it has leaders at several key agencies who are ready, willing, and able to accelerate Australia's energy transition in a big way, working the levers of policy, economic, and technical systems at the same time, including the largest deployments of utility-scale battery systems of any country in the world. So Australia is demonstrating some truly interesting findings to the rest of the world on how a grid might function self-sufficiently at scale with significant shares of variable renewable power and large battery storage systems. Now, it's been a year since our super wonky and super interesting interview with Jenny Reese of the Australian Energy Market Operator, or AMO, which has proved to be one of our most popular episodes. And a lot has changed since then. Among other things, Tesla has installed the world's largest battery, which has already proven its worth, and AMO made a number of technical changes to make its grid more stable and reliable. So when Ivor Frischknecht, a subscriber to the show and the CEO of the Australian Renewable Energy Agency, or ARENA, reached out to me and offered to give our listeners an update on Australia's energy transition, well, I could hardly say no. Not only is he a widely acknowledged expert and innovator in the energy industry, he's also responsible for some of the more interesting and cutting-edge investments in new technologies that have yet to cross the valley of death and reach commercial reality. With deep knowledge of the grid's needs in Australia and a far-reaching vision for what it can become, it's hard to imagine anyone more expert on energy transition than him, and it's a great privilege to have him on the show. Then in the news segment, we'll talk about three new developments on the grid in Australia, which demonstrate the remarkable performance of the new distributed utility-scale battery systems there, look at some new plans for even larger systems, mention a new milestone for offshore wind in the Netherlands, and consider a new paper and subsequent rebuttal in an academic journal about the feasibility of a 100% renewable global energy system. But first, our interview with Ivor Frischknecht, recorded April 17, 2018. 
So let's bring him into the conversation now. Welcome, Yvor, to the Energy Transition Show. Thank you, Chris. Great to be here. You head up the Australian Renewable Energy Agency, or ARENA. So before we discuss what's happening in Australia, I wondered if you could tell us briefly about what ARENA is, what it does, and how it's funded. Sure. It's a $2.1 billion Australian government agency. That's Australian dollars. Translates to about 1.6 billion US dollars. And throughout today, I'll try to use US dollars. Having lived in the US for 10 years, I can think that way. Arena's purpose is to accelerate Australia's shift to affordable and reliable renewable energy. We cover the whole innovation chain from R&D to large-scale project finance, as long as it's not commercially viable. So in total, about 360 projects that we've funded for a U.S. audience. Think about it as being similar to the Department of Energy Concessional Loans Program, Add to that ARPA-E and add to that some of the R&D funding components of NREL. And that's what ARENA is. One of the important things about ARENA is that it has an independent board, very commercially oriented board. And we also have the ability to roll over unused funding from one year to the next, which is quite unusual for a government entity. If we do get money back from our projects, we're able to keep that and respend it on another project. So it gives us the right incentives to be very commercially oriented. And certainly my own background and many of our staff are very financial and commercial. Interesting. So you're exclusively focused on non-commercial technologies. So your investments are clearly designed to de-risk the market for private sector investments or to help a technology get over the valley of death, as it were. That's right. And every project we look at, we look at what is the cheapest, the most cost-effective way that we can advance towards being fully commercially viable for a particular solution or a particular technology or a barrier that we want to remove. Interesting. So it's maximizing returns, but not in a commercial sense. Gotcha. All right. So a lot has changed in Australia since our interview with Jenny Reese of AMO in episode 39, which was actually a year ago. So how about we start with updating our listeners on the state of play down under, and then we can move on to some of the forward-looking topics. Does that sound good? Absolutely. And you are right. A lot has happened in Australia. (laughs) Yes, it has. (laughs) Well, you know, I think one of the biggest headline generators or the things that maybe we're more likely to hear about across the pond over here has been the spike in wholesale power prices. So why don't we start with that since it's probably the thing that's top of mind for most listeners. Can you tell us how those prices have changed and why? Yes. So wholesale prices went up about 60% from 2016 to 2017. So that's a big increase. It was driven by the closure of older generators. And the primary reason for why they closed is because it would cost a lot to make them safe and reliable. And it's actually quite a big issue because a lot of our coal generators are aging and are nearing the end of their life. So you've got reduced supply And that means in an energy-only market that prices according to a bid stack, the price is increasingly being set by gas generators. And gas generation, of course, is more expensive, and that means the prices are higher. But at the same time, 
gas prices have also increased because the Australian East Coast gas supply has been linked to international markets. So we've moved during the same period of closing generators. We've also had increasing prices in the same area in the gas system. The other aspect to rising prices is that there's suddenly some market power issues. So as an example, the Queensland government, which owns its generators, instructed them to change their bidding practices and almost immediately prices came down. So you've got a situation there that could perhaps be addressed by more competition. To give your listeners a sense, we're talking US $70 per megawatt hour is the wholesale market price. And to put that in a long-term context, we've got historically low energy prices at the retail level that over the course of 10 years or so have gone up by 63% is what the competition regulator just told us. Over 10 years, they've gone up 63% above inflation. So that's a big price rise for retail consumers. And a big chunk of that is the increase in network costs. So even though the wholesale prices have jumped up recently, it's been the network costs that have been the biggest increase in a sustained way over the last decade or so. And what's involved in the network costs? So this is going back some 10 years or so. There was an increase in the reliability standard that was required. Some forecasts for demand growth weren't realized. So you've got the networks building out capacity that eventually wasn't needed or that has been built to meet a higher reliability standard than we've had historically. And so you put those two things together in a regulated environment where the networks are getting a rate of return on each investment that they make. You're locking in those higher prices for substantial periods of time, typically 30 years for an asset to be paid off. Yeah. So this is, I guess, fairly well-known now critique of Australia having so-called gold-plated its distribution grid. Yeah, that's right. And one of the really interesting questions is, will that additional capacity that the distribution and the transmission grid have, will they be useful in the new world or will we actually need to invest yet more to make it suitable for a much more distributed, much more renewable system? Hmm. You know, this narrative about grid prices having gone up because you've largely switched a lot of plants that were coal and switched over to gas might seem quite strange to an American audience because, of course, here we've seen the opposite. We've seen low-cost shale gas pushing higher-cost coal off of the grid. So can you give us a sense of you know, what the relative costs are in Australia for a megawatt of coal power versus a megawatt of natural gas so that we can understand how natural gas has actually increased the wholesale price? Yeah, sure. And I'll try to use US prices. So coal is quite hard to give you a number, but I'll give you a range of numbers and illustrate some of the complexity. So the older plants that have reached the end of their life effectively, but are still being run, they're fully depreciated and they're not doing much investment in maintaining their reliability. So it really just is the operational cost of feeding the coal in, which in the case of brown coal, 
it's essentially free or near free. They're sitting on a coal mine, uh, these power stations, and coal is not exportable. And so their operational costs are as low as $10 a megawatt hour. If you're talking black coal, so this is higher value coal that has alternative uses, could be exported. The costs there, but again, existing depreciated plant might be on the order of $30 a megawatt hour, something like that. Building a new coal plant, if you could get it financed, but let's just assume you could finance it for about the same costs that you build renewables for, you'd be up in the $70 to $80 US dollar per megawatt hour. Wind and solar, solar PV, so new plants being built, talking high 30s, maybe up to $50 US dollars a megawatt hour. So those kinds of costs, gas, again, there's a variety combined cycle as well as peakers, but you're talking more approaching 80 to $100 a megawatt hour. Oh my goodness. Wow. I do find that surprising because, I mean, Australia does have gas resources. That's right. The local gas market. So if you want a new gas supply contract, you tend to pay at least as much as the international export price, which is interesting because historically our gas prices have been very low. But in order to build these new export facilities, which are huge, you know, $10 billion type investments in liquefaction plants and port facilities right. and so on, sure. they needed to lock in long-term contracts. So long-term contracts for a very large fraction of the gas that's available on the East Coast. And so there's actually a shortage looming for domestic users because it's all being pledged for export. <laughs> so essentially... <laughs> Australian citizens, just regular ratepayers who buy electricity from the grid, have seen their electricity prices go up because the Australian gas industry wants to export its gas. That is in part the case. But remember, the only reason that the gas plants are setting the price is because we've had a number of closures of both coal and gas over the number of years. The Upside, though, the opportunity here is that the wholesale prices have been, on average, higher, substantially higher than it cost to put in a renewables plant. So even if, as you know, wind or solar are not always available because it's not always sunny, not always windy, even if you only get that output from those plants some of the time, it's worth your while building those plants because you're offsetting wholesale power prices that are substantially higher. So there's just been an absolute bonanza of renewables plants being built. Yeah, well, when your solar is coming in at, you know, whatever you said it was, $30 a megawatt hour, and you're competing against gas at 80, you can sort of see how that would work. Yeah, no, it works really well. Now, of course, you still <laughs> need to figure out what happens when there is no sun or there is no wind. Yes, but worst case, you're up at 80. And interestingly, we've done some modeling about what would a renewable system look like in the very long term, and very long term being a couple decades. So mostly renewable, mostly wind and solar. It needs to be firmed up with batteries or storage or demand response and interconnections and other forms of flexible capacity. You put all of that together on a system-wide basis, we're probably talking something like $70 a megawatt hour at most. Hmm. 
So that's pretty interesting. What we're saying is you can run the whole system completely renewable, no carbon, for prices that are below where the current average wholesale prices are. Yeah. And seven cents a kilowatt hour, even on a wholesale basis, is not bad at all. How does that translate to uh, the retail price? Well, so you need to add about 50%. So retail prices are about 15 to 25 US cents a kilowatt hour. Hmm. And of that, and there's a wide range because, as you know, we have a competitive retail market in Australia and there are 30 plus retailers with just a bewildering array of different offers that they supply out into the market. So it's very hard to generalize, but let's say 15 to 25 US cents per kilowatt hour. Of that, about half is network costs. And then the remainder, you've got the wholesale price, you've got the retail margin, and then you've got a bit of a green cost for the renewable energy certificates that over time will go away. Interesting. So if you had an all-in renewable plus storage plus demand response plus you know all the other lovely DER options system, you'd still be looking at 10, 11 US cents a kilowatt hour. Retail prices, yes. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's probably right. But that's where we've been historically. So it's not a big change for Australia. Well, and that's, you know, basically the average cost of power in most of the U.S. as well is, you know, 11, 12 cents a kilowatt hour. Now, of course, that leaves out, you know, the major, much more expensive markets like California and New York. But, you know, much of the rest of the country, it's sort of 11, 12 cents, somewhere in that zone, which means essentially that you can have a fully renewable system without the fossil fuel power for about the same price that you're paying today or even less. That's right. And without the carbon or any of the other pollution externalities that you get along with fossil fuel powered. Yeah. So that's just incredibly exciting. Yeah. There will be a huge transition. That's the name of your show, right? There's going to be a big, <laughs> big transition, lots of dislocation between now and then. Yep. Lots but, of winners and losers. But we will get there yeah. and we can see how it's achievable already. We hope you've enjoyed this free sample of the Energy Transition Show. Our full episodes cover much more and are generally at least an hour long. In addition to two full new episodes each month, subscribers can also view interactive transcripts of our interviews and explore our extensive show notes with links to all the research resources and news items for each episode. Our subscription podcast works in all podcast apps and players, including iTunes, and is downloadable. The first 33 episodes of the Energy Transition Show were free and always will be, so if you want to see what our full shows contain, feel free to check those out. Then we hope you'll become a member and support our show. To become a subscriber and enjoy our full offerings, just point your browser to energytransitionshow.com and join. Annual subscriptions are just $60 a year. Monthly subscriptions and per-episode purchases are also available. In order to bring you the most unfiltered, unbiased, honest information we can produce, we have elected not to take any sponsors or advertisers. 100% of the revenue that makes the Energy Transition Show possible comes from listener subscriptions. And let me offer a special welcome to the students and educators out there who have joined our new subscribers. A half dozen university classes are now using the show as coursework, with more joining all the time, so welcome. 
And if you're a student or an educator who would like to inquire about our unbeatable educational discount, just shoot me an email at chris at energytransitionshow.com and we'll work something out for you. So join us today and support our ad-free, hormone-free, organic, handcrafted, artisanal podcast featuring high-quality, cutting-edge interviews and news about the most important story of our time, energy transition. And now a quick look at some recent news items. Item 1. Although it wasn't known at the time of this interview, Tesla's plan to install solar and battery systems in 50,000 homes and create what they're calling the world's largest virtual power plant got the go-ahead in late May, as the state government committed to proceeding with the plan. With the help of a $2 million grant and a $30 million loan from the state government, two initial phases of the project will proceed and install 1,100 of the systems. Depending on the success of those phases and the ability of additional private capital, a third phase will expand the project to as many as 50,000 home systems. Item 2. An interesting little post from April in Renew Economy shows how distributed systems in Australia responded when the large 750-megawatt Cogan Creek coal fire generator in Queensland tripped offline on April 24th. Hundreds of systems... Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com and follow us on Twitter at Transition Show. Our theme music was by Mike Sugar and Mark Burnfield, who you can find online at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network. <laughs>